so today we're talking about Passover, and um, I don't know about you guys, when I study the old Hebrew stuff, or the new Hebrew stuff, the new Jewish stuff, I get a little confused sometimes. Sharon, she can relate with the Hebrew side of it. Um, they just thought differently than I did. They were unbelievably specific and detailed in the most beautiful ways, but also over the years it's become more and more religious, and there's so many little tiny things that when I dig into it, I get confused, just to be blunt. Um, for instance, um, their, even their way of doing time is totally different than the way that we did time. They started the next day, today, tonight. Is, tonight is tomorrow. So 6 o'clock, six, 5.59 tonight is today. 6.01 tonight is tomorrow. Which means that once we get to 6.01 tonight, we're actually in yesterday right now, tonight. Okay, it's like, what? I'm so confused when I look at this stuff. My goal this morning, as we talk about the Passover, is I want to, as simply as I can, explain how did Jesus fulfill the role of the Passover lamb. And my hope is that even if there were little tiny kids in the room, they would understand how Jesus fulfilled the Passover lamb. Amen? So that's what we're going for. Don't prepare to get your mind blown, but I want to just celebrate and prepare our hearts for Passover next week and for Easter next week, okay? So, some things to recognize about Passover is that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years leading up to Jesus, every single year, this was a command that the whole nation of Israel was to celebrate the Passover once a year. The Day of Atonement, like we talked about last week, is the one time a year for God to deal with the sins of man. The Passover was another time of the year for God to deal with the sins of the man. Day of Atonement was more about a national thing. The Passover was more about your personal family and the blood of the Lamb covering over your personal family. In the very beginning, the first Passover was with Moses. And Moses, in that evening, at the end of the 10th plague, God said, take a lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, put it over the doorposts, right? And when the angel of the Lord comes to kill the firstborn children, it will see the blood of the lamb covering over the sins of your household so that there is not death in your family. And God, from day one, was pointing to the fact, even before the foundations of the world, pointing to the fact that the blood of the lamb is the one who pays for the sins. Amen? And so they celebrated. And for years, they celebrated. They would go on Passover day to the temple in Jerusalem. And they would, the whole nation, show up once a year, and they would have a lamb, and they would take it to the priest. So here's what the normal week would look like. Leading up to it, several days before, they would go out to their herd of sheep, and they would select the pure spotless lamb. They would start inspecting all of their own personal sheep or lambs. If they didn't have their own, they had to go buy one, and they had to share it with a, a family neighbor. So they select the perfect lamb, and then they take it, they bring it into the house, and they start loving on it for the whole week. And that lamb now becomes a part of the family. Oh, you sweet lamb, we're so thankful. Today, this is my lamb, okay? I ordered a extremely lifelike-looking lamb, supposedly, from Amazon, and it was guaranteed to be here on Friday, and I'm blaming the devil. It's not here. So this is our lamb today, okay? His name is George. If Jack comes in, he will take him, so somebody stop him at the door. This is our lamb, okay? So they inspect the lamb. Oh, little lamb, we love you. Thank you for taking the sins of our family. Come be in our house. And for the, the week, they take care of it. Make sure nothing bad happens to the lamb, okay? Then, a few days before, they rush into Jerusalem. They all head up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a mountain. And they all head up to the top of this mountain. They go into the temple together, and it's the day to present your lamb to the priests. And the priests are going to begin to inspect your lamb. 
And they start looking over your lamb and checking it out. Oh, oh, there's a little bit of fat there. Oh, there's a little dot there. There's a smudge there. No, this one's not perfect and holy. I'm so sorry. But you know what? Good news for you. We have a place in the temple where you can go get a pure and spotless lamb. Only $19.99. Take your lamb over this way and give it to the temple changers, and they're going to swap you out with the one that's pre-qualified to be pure and spotless by the priests. Hallelujah. Amen. So you take your little pure spotless lamb that's apparently not pure and spotless. You take it over to the, to the money changers in the temple. You give it to them. They say, I don't know why, but they said this one doesn't count. So you give it to the temple changer, and then you pull out all your money. You give them all your money that you worked hard for. You, I mean, guys, anybody ever traveled on vacation? It's expensive to travel. Can you imagine every single year you had to drop everything you're doing, quit working, and go up to Jerusalem to do this thing so that your family it has their sins covered? Right? It's expensive. So you give him all your money, and then he's like, oh, okay, thank you very much. I got a pure spotless one. Here you go. And you pull it out, and you're like, this one's kind of ugly. Are you sure? That, oh, no, this one's guaranteed. The priest came early, and he checked out. This one's guaranteed. No problems with this lamb. So you take it, and you take it back to the priest. What about this one? He's like, yeah, it looks great. And then you see your lamb being sold to somebody else as the pure spotless lamb. It was a racket. It was nasty. Right? It was bad news. It had gotten to be bad news. So you inspect it, and there's a period of three, three days where they inspect the lamb to see if there's any blemishes. Then the day of preparation, you get, take your lamb, uh, you've, you've got it, you run it in 3 p.m. on the day of preparation, the, which is Good Friday. You run it into the temple, and just imagine, at, at Passover time, they say that there was anywhere from one to two million people coming upon the city. You can walk across all of Jerusalem in like four hours. It's a small town. So just imagine more, okay? Um, and imagine million, two million people converging on more all on one day. All trying to get into the Warren Theater. What? <laughs> this is crazy. So pandemonium. And they do this year after year after year for like 1,200 years up until Jesus comes. So they've got their pure spotless lamb. I need my pure spotless lamb. They've got their pure spotless lamb. On their, on their backs, and they run it into the temple, and it's the day, it's the big show, and they give it to the priest, and the priest takes their lamb, and the priest takes a knife, and he slits the throat of the lamb, and blood begins to spill, and then there's a, a Levite priest who will take a bowl, and he catches the blood of the lamb in a bowl. The bottom of the bowl cannot be flat. It's illegal to have a flat bottom bowl, because then they could possibly set down the blood. It could coagulate, which is a no-no in their culture, okay? So, a bowl, they grab the uh, blood, and then there's this fire line of priests. So you're over here slaughtering the lambs. Way over there is the altar, and it's on fire, and they're burning sacrifices to the Lord. And so the priest takes your bowl of blood, passes it off to the next guy, passes it off to the next guy. And just imagine, you got a million people's blood flowing through this thing, and it's sloshing everywhere. It's getting nasty. It's gross. Can you imagine the amount of blood flowing through the temple? I mean, that would scar you for life. And they're supposed to do this to honor God. So they pass it on. And the blood of the lamb has got to make it all the way over to the altar over here, which is on fire. And as soon as it gets here, they splash it on the altar to make payment for their sins, to remember that the blood of the lamb covers over their sins. Okay? Then they take their lamb. And uh, after they've killed it, the priest gives it back to the owner of the lamb. And then they take it over to this other area. They hang it up, and they begin to skin it. They get rid of the guts, and they, they clean it right there. They take it down. They give it back to the guy. The guy goes back to his house, 
and they begin the preparations for the meal. They roast it over an open fire, and then that evening, they remember the Passover back from Exodus, okay? So, like 1,200 years, year after 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 year, they're used to this. This is Passover. But at the same time, it's kind of a fun time because it's your family. It's time for, you know, go see your bro and your sister and your cousins and your aunts and uncles. They're all there at the Warren Theater, the temple, hanging out, doing their sacrifice every single year. So that's the scene that Jesus comes on to. And Jesus himself became the Passover lamb that week. And I'm not going to get into all the intricacies, but it's beautiful how Jesus physically, in body, fulfilled the role of exactly what the lambs were doing that same week, okay? So let's look at a few of the things. This is Saturday, so it would have been yesterday, okay? T-minus six days before Jesus is killed. Let's take a look at what happens. So this is the day that they are selecting their sheep. They're out in the fields. They go and pick out their sheep. They say, this is the pure spotless lamb. Come into my house, oh sweet little lamb. Thank you for dying for my sins. We, we love you, okay? That's the day. On the same day, where is Jesus? Jesus is in the house. He's gone inside of the house of Lazarus. The man who he just raised from the dead just recently before. And it's a party. It's a celebration. They're hanging out in Lazarus' house. And while they're having dinner at that, at that meal, this woman comes in named Mary. And what does she have with her? She has an alabaster jar that's full of the most beautiful perfume you've ever smelt in your whole life. It's worth over a year's wage. Unbelievably expensive. And while Jesus is hanging out with his friends, sharing a meal, she comes up behind him and she breaks open the alabaster jar and she pours out the whole jar on Jesus. Anybody ever been close to somebody who, who did a little too much of this? And you're like, oh man, you're like. So just imagine you're in this small house, Lazarus's house, and Jesus says it just had the whole thing dumped on him. Can you imagine the smell just invading people's nostrils? It's offensive, the smell of how strong it is. And somebody there gets offended. What's his name? Judas. Oh, I can't believe this. I'm the money treasurer of this group. And that money could have been used to help the poor. What are you doing? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. You clearly don't have a clue what's happening here. On the day the sheep were selected and brought into the house, Jesus himself is brought into the house and selected to take the sins of the people. He is anointed for burial by Mary. Amen? And that's so good. Okay, the next day. T minus five days. Jesus is still outside of Jerusalem. He's talking with his guys. And he has a, a sit-down conversation with them. And he says, guys, listen here. We're about to go up to Jerusalem tomorrow. And they're like, no, they're going to kill you if you go up to Jerusalem. No, we're going to Jerusalem. And let me be unbelievably clear what's going to happen. They're going to arrest me. They are going to beat me. They are going to persecute me. They are going to hand me over to the Romans who will flog me and they will mock me and they will crucify me. But don't worry. Three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. Okay? I don't know how much more clear Jesus could be in this moment with his disciples. 
but they totally don't get it because they've been looking at Jesus. They're beginning to clue into the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior of Israel, but they're thinking in the natural. They're thinking in the flesh. Their spirits are testifying, you are the Messiah, but they don't understand what it means. And so they're also thinking, you are the political Savior of our time. You're going to get rid of the Romans in Jerusalem what do you mean the Romans are going to take you and kill you? No, 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 no. You don't understand. But Jesus is extremely clear and extremely frank with these guys five days before he dies. All right? Next day, it's Monday. So that would have been yesterday. Tomorrow, or so that would have been today is when Jesus told the guys. Tomorrow, Monday, T minus four days. This is the official day where you take your lambs into the temple. All right? Now remember, Jerusalem is up on a mountain. Uh, up on a hill, and there are gates. There's only a handful of gates that are operable and that you can get into the city. So you've got a million, two million people, all of Oklahoma City. Anybody ever been to a Norman game, OU game? It's miserable. You're trying to get in. You stand in line for like five hours just to get through this gate, and there's like a billion gates to get through. So just imagine all these people trying to get into Jerusalem through less gates than what we have at the OU Stadium, Okay. So it's a crazy scene. And one of the main ways to get to Jerusalem was to go through the Mount of Olives. You had to go up over this hill, and then you had to come down a very steep road, a uh, 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 hill. And then on the main road for that was a very narrow road, like eight feet wide, maybe a little bit less. I've been on it. It's extremely tight. So just imagine all these people cramming down this little area, trying to get into the temple. And all of them have their selected lambs on their shoulders, or they're dragging them by the leash, or they're holding them. They're getting into the temple to show their lambs to the priest and go through that whole process of getting it officially approved and inspected by the priest. All right? What's happening on this day? Jesus, the Passover lamb, he turns to his guys. He says, guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. I want you to run up the road. And there's a donkey tied next to somebody's house. I want you to grab it. If anybody asks you why, just say the Messiah needs it. And so they go and grab the donkey. They bring it back to Jesus. And he's getting ready to go into Jerusalem. He sits up on the donkey. And he begins to make the journey down the hill over into Jerusalem. All right? So as he's going along, again, the people are testifying in their spirits. Oh, my gosh. This is... that. That's the Messiah. Like, they were beginning to check it off in their minds. Like, wow, he's a prophet. Everything he says is true. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's doing all the things that we've been told to look for. Oh, my, go oh my goodness. And just think, from the beginning of time, God has been training his people to pay attention for when the Lamb of God comes to take the sins of the world. And it's beginning to click in a few of their minds. They're like, oh, my gosh, they, could that be him? Could that be him? And they begin to chant. As they're going in to the temple with their lambs, they begin to chant. They start saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is often thought of as a declaration of praise, similar to hallelujah, but it's actually a plea for salvation. The Hebrew root word is found in Psalms 118.25, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. The Hebrew word there is yasha, which means deliver or save us. And then ana is beg or beseech. So if you combine to form the word that in English is hosanna, literally hosanna means I beg you to save me. I beg you to save us. And so how beautiful. Jesus on the donkey fulfilling Zechariah 9, which says, 
Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is riding, fulfilling this prophecy. And people in their spirits begin to realize, but they're also realizing in the flesh. Wait, wait. Oh my gosh, that's the Messiah. Oh my gosh, he's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to get the Romans out of here. Yeah, Hosanna. Jesus, save us. Deliver us, Jesus. Save us. Save us. Deliver us, Jesus. And so you have all these people packed into this tiny road, all trying to get up to Jerusalem, all with their lambs. And it says that Jesus gets up to the top of Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives. He gets up to the top, and there at the Mount of Olives is this beautiful scenery. You can see every bit of Jerusalem so beautifully. It's like you can reach out and touch it. If you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem, that probably is the picture you have seen, where it has the golden uh, arch right across, the, right across the valley. That's from the Mount of Olives, looking at where the temple used to be. And so Jesus is there in that place, and all these people are crammed in around, and they're testifying that this is the Savior. They're putting their coats on the ground. They're putting the palm leaves on the ground, and they're yelling out, save us, save us, save us. And I think Jesus is overwhelmed. The shortest verse in the Bible, what's it say? Jesus wept. It's easy because it's so short to be like, oh, Jesus is going along, and he wept, and moved on, and he cried a little bit. He had a little tear. No, when's the last time you wept? Can you just remember the last time you wept? Okay. We can do deliverance and, and inner healing afterwards. But when you weep, it is a deep emotional thing happening inside of you. When you cry a little, it's like, okay, that's one thing. When you weep, there is something deep and powerful inside of you that you cannot control. You are uncontrollable in that moment when you are weeping. And so just imagine Jesus on the cult this is the moment that since the beginning of the foundation of the world, it all points to this. And there he is. He's overwhelmed. He's uncontrolled. And he begins to weep. Looking at Jerusalem. Looking at the people. He's weeping uncontrollably. Crying. He can't help himself. He's overwhelmed completely. I think he's overwhelmed at the situation in the temple and the people's hearts and what the Pharisees have done. I think he's overwhelmed that all these people are staring at him saying, save us, but they have no idea what they're talking about. I think he's overwhelmed that from the foundation of the world, this has been the plan and they missed it so huge. But there's Jesus being celebrated in front of hundreds of thousands of people and he's weeping uncontrollably. So he makes his way down the road. It's a very, I mean, you're imagining like this. It's very steep, okay? He makes his way down the road. All these people are going into the temple. And there's a gate on the side of the temple. It's one of the gates that goes directly into the temple. And all, Jesus almost never used, I don't think he used it once his whole lifetime until this one moment. Normally, they go down into the valley, they go over to the city of David, and they go up through the main road of the city, through Jerusalem, to get to the temple. But on this day, it was prophesied about him, he's going to come through this one special gate, the beautiful gate. And so on this one day, in front of hundreds of thousands of people, once again fulfilling another prophecy, Jesus enters the temple through the beautiful gate, okay? Along with all of the other lambs, who are going to be inspected by the priests. So he gets there to the priests. And what happens over the next three days? Jesus is inspected by the priests. 
They begin to scheme together. Oh, let's get him. Let's find a flaw inside of him. Let's find a dot, a, a piece of fat, a speckle, where we can say he's not pure and spotless. And they scheme together, all the most brilliant minds of the time. Let's go ask him this question. Let's go ask him this question. And he's teaching in front of the people, and they come up to him. Master, master, since you're so brilliant, let me ask you about this. And they, they throw a, a, what they think is going to be a bombshell. They're going to destroy his whole ministry right here. They throw it out there. And Jesus answers so beautifully and so simply and so powerfully each and every time. Bam, 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 bam. And one by one, the most brilliant minds of the whole nation are smacked down, humiliated. As Jesus proves himself pure and spotless. And before long, there's nobody else who can come and ask him questions because they're terrified of being humiliated, right? It's beautiful. All the while, other Levite priests are inspecting lambs in that very moment in that very place. Isn't that amazing? Okay, let's go to the next one. This is Tuesday. T minus three days until Jesus um, is killed, until he's crucified. So another part of the Passover is leading up to the Passover feast. You are required by law to get rid of all leaven in your house. The reason for this is that the original Passover, they didn't have time to put the yeast into their bread, which is leaven, to let it rise. And so they grabbed all their stuff and they hurried out quickly to get out of Egypt. Once the Pharaoh said, get out of here, they all run away and they end up with flat, nasty bread. Okay? So there's no leaven inside of it. And they... Get, they clear the whole house of their leaven so they can remember the haste that was, ha- that was happening. But throughout the Bible, leaven also symbolizes sin. And so the idea is that leading up to Passover, we're cleaning our hearts. And we go through the whole house. And it would literally, uh, a piece of yeast is like so tiny. It's, it's like the size of a piece of salt, like one grain of salt. And they were supposed to get out every single piece of leaven out of the whole house. And they would empty their cupboards, and they would get rid of all of their bread and all of their yeast and all the. It was a big process. It was a big deal. And so you're supposed to clean the house. And on this day, Jesus has been preparing and meditating. He's actually handcrafted a whip for this special day. He goes into the temple. As everybody's clearing their houses, he goes into his house. And he comes up to the money changers, and he, and he sees what they're doing. He sees the injustice of how they're ripping people off and taking their money and becoming richer and richer because they're trying to honor God, and he's had enough. And imagine, this isn't like one table, like a couple little things here. This is a racket. This is like a multi-million dollar scheme that the priests have worked up with these other people in the temple, and there's table after table after table after table after table, and it's this huge thing in the temple. And so what's Jesus do? Jesus, meek and mild. I love the term meek because what it means, I, I always envision, um, the, you know, the Budweiser horses? What are they called, Clydesdale? Have you ever been close to one? Like, dude, <laughs> put the fear of God inside of me when I'm close to them because they are huge. They are strong. They are powerful. But when you put that bridle on a Clydesdale horse, it is fully submitted to his master. And it will not do what it wants. It will do only what the master wants. And so we see Jesus, with his whip, enter the temple to clean his house. And he walks up to the money changers, meek and powerful, with authority. He's not out of control. 
He's fully under control to the will of his father, obeying the Passover rituals and rules of cleaning the house. And he comes up to the table, and he flips the table over. He cracks the whip. And he goes to the next one. He flips it over, and he rips it in pieces. And he systematically goes one by one by one by one by one through the whole temple, clearing the yeast out of the house. Amen? Jesus fulfilling the Passover. Wednesday, T minus two days. This is the day that Judas, he's been with Jesus for years. He's been following Jesus. And these are my opinions, but this is what I think is going through Judas's head. Judas has realized he's the Messiah, he's the leader, he's the chosen one to rescue Israel, but he's thinking all political, all flesh. And so he's thinking, I'm, gonna get, I'm the money guy. Like, I'm there with Jesus. I'm going to be, like, in charge of all the money of the whole new government for the whole system. Heck yeah! Okay? And so Judas is thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus just told us a few days ago that he's about to come to Jerusalem, and he's going to let the Romans arrest him, and he's going to be killed. That is totally not the plan. Like, he's supposed to save all of Israel. What the heck is this about? I'm not going to do that. And so I think Judas thinks, I'm going to force Jesus' hand. I'm going to make this party get started. I'm going to go to the Pharisees. I'm going to say, hey, look, he's the guy. I believe it in my heart, but let's get this thing started because whatever his silly plan is, it's ridiculous. So let's see what happens now. I'll set up a time and place where you can have Jesus in your conditions exactly like you want, where you're not going to get in trouble with the rest of Israel, and let's see what happens. And they're like, okay, 30 pieces of gold, or not gold, uh, copper. Was it silver? Okay, 30 pieces of silver. He takes the deal, right? Incidentally, hundreds of years before, another savior of the world was sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Joseph. He literally saved the world from famine, right? Because he followed the Lord. He had the favor of the Lord, and he was sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Next day, T minus, one day. It's getting real now. Jesus, in Matthew 26, he says, my appointed time has come. He says, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples. Go and prepare. Get the house ready for us to have the Seder meal, have the Last Supper together. And so Jesus, in that evening, this is a day before the national Seder, okay? Because Jesus is fulfilling the Passover lamb, he's got to do something else the next day. So this is the day before the national Seder. He has his own Savior in the upper rooms with his guys. And in this moment, gosh, I love this. There's a lot that happens, but there's a couple specific things that I really love. The Bread and the Wine. Hey, this is a great album, huh? Anybody know worship team? Bread and Wine? Okay. So there's two things that I want us to focus on. Every single Passover for 1,200 years, I think it is, they have these elements on their table. They don't have Yeti cups, so don't get excited, but they had four cups of wine. Okay? And then they had three pieces of bread unleavened bread that were striped and pierced. And they were inside white linen uh, pieces of cloth. They were folded up. Okay? One, two, three. One, two, three, four. Here's what they meant. 
The first one was, I will bring you out. I will bring you out of slavery. I will bring you out of Egypt. Number two, I will deliver you from your bondage. Number three, I will redeem you from your sin. Number four, I will take you out. I will acquire you into my household. The four cups symbolized 1,200 years getting ready for Jesus. Then you had the bread. Let's see if I can do this. Okay. You had the bread and burp cloths. Here we are, striped and pierced. That's not striped and pierced. This is striped and pierced. Now, if you ask Jews today, what are the three pieces of bread for? It's called matzah. What are they for? What do they symbolize? A lot of them have no idea why there's three separate pieces of bread. They have no idea why they do something special with the middle piece of bread. They don't know. But God set it up from the beginning of the foundation of the world for something very specific. You know what the first piece of bread was? can't draw very well on this uh, striped and pierced bread. Number one was God, okay? Number two, Jesus. Number two symbolizes Jesus. And number three, Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay? So there, with Jesus... Hundreds of years. These guys have done the Passover 30 times, 40 times in their life. And there's always three pieces of bread. There's always four cups. They don't get it. They don't understand. And in this moment, Jesus is there with them, with them, teaching them the meaning of the bread. So normally in the Passover, they'll take the middle piece of bread. This is so cool. And they'll go and hide it somewhere in the house. And they'll stick it under something. And they'll be like, okay, kids, we can't find the matzah. Go find it. And all the kids run around the whole house. And they try to find it. And whoever finds the middle piece of bread, there's a celebration. And they get a gift for finding the middle piece of bread. All right? Then they take the bread. They put it in the middle of the three pieces pieces of bread, the three covered up white linen cloths. Come on, this is too much, all right? (laughs) And so at this meal that they're used to, very religious, Jesus pulls out the bread and he says, guys, guess what? This bread is my body broken for you. To cover your sins. Take it and eat. Amen? So they take and eat. And can you just imagine, you've done this for 30, 40 years, and you totally don't get it. You're like, well, what is this for? And in this moment, you're with the creator of the world, and he says, this is my body. Right? Your brain is just like, oh, oh my God. And you're like looking at your neighbor like, holy smokes, this is insane. Did you hear what he said? This is his body. (gasps) I'm so confused. What is he talking about, right? Can you imagine the moment? And then he finishes that. And then it's time for the wine. And he reaches out and he only grabs one cup of wine. He reaches out and he grabs the third cup of wine which symbolizes, and they all know this, 
This was not unclear at all. They understood the four cups of wine. God will bring you out of Egypt. God will deliver you from the bondage. God will redeem his people. God will take you up. And they're all thinking promised land, but Jesus is thinking heaven and sin and life eternal. And Jesus reaches out and he grabs the third cup, which they all know, I will redeem you. He says, guys, this This is my blood, the blood of the lamb, which covers the sins of the people. This is me. Take it and drink. Right? Amazing. Okay? We're going to enjoy some of that fun on Friday. I hope you can come. I hope you all texted me. Man, there's so much more, and I'm just trying to, Simply honor Jesus here. but So that happens. And then they go up to uh, the Mount of Olives that night. You remember at midnight at the original Passover, the angel of the Lord comes. The angel of death comes and he begins to kill the firstborn children of anybody who did not have the blood of the lamb covering their household at midnight. And Jesus is at the Mount of Olives and he's praying with his disciples who are also sleeping. And he's praying, he's praying, and he's talking to God. And in that moment at midnight... They come to arrest Jesus, and they take him, and they take him down to the high priest's house, which is like a compound, and it also had a prison. It was this gorgeous palace, and then down in the basement was literally a pit carved of stone. I've been inside of it. It's like so weird. Why is this gorgeous mansion of the most holy guy in the world have a pit and a dungeon in the basement? This is really weird, okay? But it's true. And so they take them there, and they have a 100% illegal trial with Jesus. They went against every single rule and every single system that they set up to try people in their system. They broke them all. They did it in the middle of the night so nobody would be there, and they began to persecute him, and they try him, and they spit at him, and they tell lies about him, and he sits there not answering anything, right? They throw him in the pit. There's these messianic uh, psalms that are a little too advanced for my brain. But Psalms 88 is a messianic psalm, and it talks about Jesus in the pit. Okay? He was there. He spends the night in that little tiny chamber. In the morning, very early, D-Day, zero days till his death. He gets up. That morning, Jesus is taken to Herod's palace where Pilate is living while he's in Jerusalem. It's called the Praetorium, the side of the, of the palace. It's this gorgeous place, but it's where he meets with people to discuss things. And he goes and they present him to Pilate. And just think, you've got an extra million plus people in your city. He's the Roman ruler of the area appointed by Caesar to make sure there's no craziness in Jerusalem. If there's craziness in Jerusalem, Pilate's killed. So this is a big day for him, and he cares about what happens on this day. And so he's thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got so much to do. I've got all these soldiers. I've got to make sure nothing crazy happens. And this is, it's a crazy time. And this is the very first thing that happens in the morning with him. And there's Jesus. And they're like, kill this guy. And he's like, take care of it yourself. And they're like, we can't. We're too holy. Oh, right. So you want me to do it for you. Okay, great. What's he done? Nothing. Jesus, what would you do? Nothing. <laughs> And Pilate declares, you know how the priests were inspecting the lambs, pure and spotless? Pilate declares he is pure and spotless. He didn't do anything. 
but they won't take it. So Pilate's thinking, how do I get out of this? These crazy Jewish people, I can't stand it. So he thinks, oh, I'll send them to King Herod Antipas. Was the regional king, one of the guys that Caesar allowed to stay kind of as a figurehead, Queen of England type thing in the area whenever Pilate came in. So he sends him over to King Herod Antipas. He's a crazy drunk, and he's like, oh, Jesus, hey, do some tricks for me, right? He's like, you're boring, Jesus, get out of here, sends it back to Pilate. He goes back to Pilate, and Pilate says, guys, what? he didn't do anything, leave me alone. And they're like, no, we want him dead. And Pilate's thinking, dead, this is ridiculous. Tell you what, take him up to Antonio Fortress and have him flogged, have him beat up, you know, kick, kick, him, kick him in the pants real good, bring him back, that should take care of it, let's move on with our day. He goes over to Antonio Fortress, this is all very close together. Rome helped the Jews set up their temple. So there's this beautiful temple that Rome helped create. But as they're, uh, you know, hey, thanks for letting us um, work with your temple. We're also going to build a fortress, literally touching and connecting. and build. They, the fortress of the Romans was the walls of the temple. So that if there was ever a revolt, they would gather at the temple to talk about what to do. And the Roman soldiers would literally be in the same courtyard separated by one piece of rock. Okay? Antonio Fortress. We've been there. It's crazy. It's right there by the temple. And they go in and there's this courtyard. This is where they beat people. This is where they rip people up and they use the, the whip and they rip his body to pieces. They stripe him. Okay? When they finish, he's almost dead. 39 lashes was the limit before a person dies. Jesus is almost dead. And they play this game with him. It's called the king's game. The Bible says that they put a, a, a cloak of purple on his shoulders, and they cast lots for his clothes, and they put a crown of thorns on his head. That comes from this demonic game that the Roman soldiers created called the king's game. And in Antonio Fortress and in other fortresses, there was a big courtyard. And in the courtyard, on the stone pavement, is engraved this, um, it's basically a board game engraved in the stone. You can see the carvings if you go there today. And there's this little board game, and then there's a spot where a sword is placed. And there's a throne. And they put, the game started as they took Roman rookie soldiers, who they wanted to mess with, kind of rough them up a little bit, and they said, hey, you're the king, get on the throne. And they throw them on the throne. They begin to play this game. And the soldiers stand around the courtyard in different positions, and they cast lots on the board table, on the game, on the floor. And when you cast lots, it's like, okay, now move forward three spots. One, two, three. Hey, congratulations, you just got that guy's house. Yeah. All right, who's next? They roll the dice again. Somebody else gets to move forward two, three steps. Hey, congratulations, you just got his wife. All right. Roll the dice again, move forward, and slowly they're coming closer and closer and closer and closer to the sword on the ground in front of the king's throne. Whoever gets to the sword is the winner. They get to kill the man. It was so brutal and so demonic that Caesar heard about it, who was a horrible person, and he outlawed it. It said, you are no longer allowed to do this. But instead of quitting it, they decided to do it with prisoners instead, people who were about to die anyways. It's called the king's game. And so there, Jesus is beaten. He's sitting in the, the uh, courtyard, and they throw him on the throne. And they play a miniature version of the king's game. And they put a sash around him of purple. And they cast lots for all of his clothes. And they put him in a white linen sash, and they put a crown of thorns upon his head. And they begin to mock him as the king. Right? They send him back over to Pilate's house. 
Pilate's like, man, surely good enough. He brings them out. All right, guys, yeah, beat them up. Let's get on. Let's move. And they're like, no, crucify him. Crucify him. And so he thinks, gosh, what else can I do to get out of this? Bring out Barabbas. They hate Barabbas. He's a miserable guy. Let's kill him. Who do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? Release Barabbas. And again, you have this picture of the Day of Atonement where you have the two lambs, and the one is going to die, and the one is released and set free. So they release Barabbas, and Jesus is the one to become the sacrificial lamb. All right? They stick him on a cross. They take him across the city, and it's all very close. So they crucify him. They put him on the cross, and Jesus probably can see the temple from where he's hanging. Jesus can definitely hear the city full of people, and he can definitely hear the lambs, the chosen selected lambs at the temple gates. He's put on the cross. He hangs on the cross for six hours. 12 p.m., three hours into it, the lights go out. Bam. Pitch black. The only other time in the Bible it goes pitch black is when God deals with sin. Jesus is on the cross. Pitch black. they got to pull out the torches to be able to see what they're doing. And they're over at the temple doing their daily regular sacrifice, trying to get ready for the 3 p.m. when the gates open and everybody rushes in. Three hours later, the shofar blows over at the temple. The gates open up. A million people forced through the gates, trying to bring their lambs to the priest to get on with their day, to get it over the fire so they can have a great meal that night. And Jesus, hanging on the cross, 3 p.m., can hear the lambs screaming as they're slaughtered. The blood begins to flow in pitch black at the temple. They gather the blood. They pass it to the next with lamps lighting their way to the altar. They're going one by one, passing the blood of the lamb while the blood of the lamb is hanging on the cross. And at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out, It is finished! And the earth begins to shake. Pitch black, tremendous earthquake like nothing we've ever felt before, so strong that the rocks break into pieces. Tombs open up because they're ripped open by the force of the earthquake. Dead people come back to life, roaming around town, pitch black. Jesus screaming, it's finished. The temple grounds are shaking. They're passing the blood. They're passing the blood. They're passing blood, trying to get it to the altar. While this is happening inside the temple, the Holy of Holies, the 60-foot curtain, six inches thick, that took hundreds of people to hang, is ripped from the top to the bottom, and God is out of his box. God is with his people. And in the same moment, the the altar that they're throwing blood at, in that very moment, is broken in two by the earthquake. And they can no longer continue their sacrifice. Jesus became the Passover lamb. In every sense of that saying, he 100% fully satisfied the requirements of the Passover lamb to pay for our sins. I'm reading this book right now. It's called uh, Destined to Reign. And uh, I heard him recently, and the Lord told me to go buy this book. And I was like, why? I did, and it's rocking me really well. But it's talking about grace. And he says something about grace that I love. He said this, did you know that on the first Pentecost, which is when they received the law, the law is called the ministry of death. 
they received the Ten Commandments. On that same day, the first Pentecost, 3,000 people died because of their sins. The ministry of death, right? Because they had created the idol. But did you know that just after Jesus dies on the cross and pays for our sins, the first Pentecost after Jesus, just days after that, 3,000 people come to life on the same day because of the ministry of life and the ministry of grace through Jesus. Here's what Joseph Prince says in the book. He says, the Bible states very clearly that we are to reign in life through Jesus Christ just by receiving two things from him, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. God's ways are contrary to man's ways. Man thinks that for God to bless him, he needs to deserve, earn, and merit God's favor and blessings by his own efforts. Man thinks that God's blessings are based on his performance and good works. However, this is not God's way. His way is not about achieving, but about receiving. He promised that when he receives, when we receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, we will reign. Amen? Amen, amen. Y'all, we turn the lights down again. I'm going to play a song on my phone. We're going to wrap up by worshiping that song. But I wanted to show you this. I forgot to show you this earlier. You know how I said that they would take the lamb and they would uh, put it on these special hooks so that they could skin the lamb? Do you remember that? You know what the hooks did with the lamb after the lamb's blood had been spilled? This is what it looked like. The specially designed hooks for 1,200 years before Jesus comes, hundreds of years before the cross and crucifixion were invented, this is what the hooks did to the lamb. They would hang them by their forearms with their legs hanging down and no broken bones, and they would skin the lamb. Isn't that amazing? Here's what I want us to do. I want us to pour out our worship and praise to Jesus right now for all of his goodness. So the altar is open. I want you guys to come fill up the front. Or you can fill up the back, whatever. But let's give all of our praise to him as we sing this song. We'll have the words on the screen as well. Jesus, we just, we just love you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. You are so brilliant. You are so loving. You are so kind. And your ways are so much above ours. And we give you all of our praise and all of our honor this morning. We thank you for becoming the Passover lamb. Payment for our sins so that we can be with God our Father. So 